Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to this special session of our course of the new ASEAN School of Economics. It gives me very special pleasure to welcome Rudy, who is our very first honorary graduate. We have never given any degree, honorary or otherwise, so far. We have been planning to, and as it turned out, he is the first one. But this is very well deserved. As you probably know, we had several names for our uh, effort to teach uh, courses on monetary economics. And the first year when I gave a course, this was in Hungary, Western Hungary, Sombathai was, I forget what year, it was quite some, yeah, doesn't matter. The name of the uh, school was Gold Standard University Live. And uh, Rudy was among the very first one who attended this. It was a very modest affair, but I would say successful, and uh, we have pleasant memories of this. And then we dropped the name because we lost our funding, and then we got some new funding, so we started. And finally we decided to adopt the name New Austrian School of Economics. Because this expresses quite well our <coughs> position. We are definitely Austrians, but we have to recognize that there are various uh, fractions within that movement, and we have something new to offer. And uh, a large part to the efforts of Rudy and to help, uh, he has been very, very active in every way. Uh, he has been lecturing, he has been conducting seminars, he has been soliciting people who has published a book. Uh, you have a copy of your book? No, unfortunately no. I didn't bring one. I All right. Anyhow, the title of the book is Be Beyond Mises. Beyond Mises. And uh, if you haven't seen it, I would highly recommend that you uh, get hold of a copy and, and see it. So I am uh, very honored that I am uh, now in the position to reward, at least in part, the uh, efforts which Rudy has done. Oh, I've forgotten. It's not just these personal efforts and being a cheerleader and uh, solicitor and very happy. He has also uh, donated his own time and money. Uh, I have uh, been uh, a professor at the Canadian University for 35 years, and I retired 20 years ago. It's now 20 years that I took 
early retirement, but I did not have the uh, resources to move my library. I left Canada shortly after, moved to Hungary, where I live now, and uh, my library was put in a warehouse, <laughs> talking about warehousing, which actually to to uh, make it a little more spicy, the warehouse previously was a slaughterhouse. <laughs> <laughs> but that's what I could afford, that's where my books were, and Rudy volunteered to go all the way from Montreal to the east coast of Canada, uh, where I was teaching, St. John's, Newfoundland and go to the slaughterhouse and collecting the books which were put in boxes and he loaded the thing on a on a truck and drove it to the to the port, seaport. Well I hired movers to do it. <laughs> <laughs> he told you he drove it. There was too many books, there was two pallets full. <laughs> Alright. And and put it on the boat and the boat arrived and we got it on the other end in Hungary and uh, he financed the whole operation out of his own resources and I'm very very grateful. Now, the uh, the library, the actual location, the premises for the library still hasn't been found but that's not your fault. I mean we have tried very various things in Vienna, in Budapest and other places and we are still searching for a place. In any case the library is still together thanks to him and I would have uh, been amiss if I did not mention this among the many many uh, contributions which Rudy has made over the years. So we devote this uh, hour to a talk which Rudy is going to give. I, I will let him to announce his own topic. In the meantime, while he's doing the announcing, I'm going to sign this uh, diploma that the uh, new Austrian School of Economics is granting degree of Master of Monetary Science, M-M-S-E, okay, Master of Monetary Science, honoris causa for reason of merit, special merit, the very first degree we are giving out, and I'm hopeful that we are going to follow uh, this up with many other degrees, degrees earned through uh, the work and the thesis, but also there will be other honorary degrees as well, And but the very first one is Rudy Fritsch. Please give a warm... Well, the prof <coughs> excuse me. <coughs> professor already said, I'm the first one, and I think this is not just an honor, it's a signal honor. And there will not be another first one, obviously. And the recognition of the things I've done and helped, um, this is treasured. <sighs> however, however, it goes quite much deeper than that. Uh, I want to thank the professor for his years of effort and writing papers and studying and 
coming up with all these brilliant ideas that the world needs to know. And um, the other thing is, well, when I started to read his papers on the internet, from the Internet Binder, and I sat and read it for months and studied and whatnot, this was the farthest thing from my mind, believe me. I, no intention in the world to, to get a degree and whatever, not, not at all. And how the world works is very interesting. This is where it ends up. And, um, <clears throat> Professor, I want to say this from the bottom of my heart. God bless you. Thank you for the work you've done. And may you be granted much more happy time on earth to do more. We, we need you and the world needs you. Thank, Thank you very you. much. You may talk. Don't, <laughs> Don't freeze, right? All right. <laughs> Very good. Right. Just one more. Here we go. And one from back here. <laughs> Now that I thank the professor, I have to thank Judith. Um, as the woman behind the man, uh, I'm sure he would have written all his papers and done all his research, but I'm not quite so sure that the uh, uh, Gold Standard University Live would have happened without her help, and it did, and she is to be, to be thanked for that, for all the work and all the support. And then, I, there's too many names to mention. I mean, I thank all of you, ladies and gentlemen, for being here. What good is a teacher without students? And others who are not here, some come from the ends of the world, from India, from Vancouver, from New Zealand, Australia, some from next door. Thank you all for being here and listening to us and hopefully uh, getting something positive and useful out of it. But I will mention a few names, if you don't mind. Louis Belanger, New Zealand, who helped organize and host the Fekete New Zealand Lectures, gracious host and very kind. And then Mr. Philip Barton, our buddy and president of the Gold Standard Institute, who is entwined into this story very much. And if you don't mind, I'll just give you a few minutes on this. When I went to the first uh, school in Sombathei, met this tall, happy, go lucky Australian chap, and I thought he was the editor of the private here for some strange reason, and then because he was a writer, and we talked, and we got to know each other a bit. But he never studied Austrian economics, and he never went through the professor's work. So every once in a while, he was sitting there, and he was like, Brody, what did he just say? What did he just say? So I said, well, he said this, 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 and this. Oh, oh yeah, okay, okay. And then the next day, what did he say? What did he say? So I explained it to him, and we all went home, and then an email comes from, from Philip. Tell me again about this destruction of capital through uh, falling interest rates. So I said, okay, I, I wrote him a little uh, street smart example and how it works, and he comes back to me, oh yes, yes, thank you, thank you, I, I get it, I get it. And the next email says, would you mind if I gave this to other people because they're interested to learn this? I say, yes, yes, yes. So next time we come together uh, in Sombathei, 
we get a little more, I, I start to recognize him and I said, okay, Philip, you are starting this institute and you're, you're, you're here to continue the work which I committed to personally to help uh, preserve and disseminate the knowledge, the information the professor had gathered. So I commit to helping you. So I ended up being the editor-in-chief of this uh, uh, Gold Standard Institute. And Philip says, you ought to write a book. I said, yeah, right, I'll write a book. Just like, yeah, right, I'll get a degree. Well, guess what? Those notes and things that I wrote became chapters of a book, and there's a book. So it's amazing. And he wishes he was here, and he, you know, he just couldn't do it. So, Philip, spirit to you. And um, I must also mention by name the other speakers at the session. Daryl, welcome back. Daryl was at the earliest sessions. As you can obviously tell by now, I'm a man of passion. And I, did the table crack yet? Or, uh, <laughs> and he was also host uh, to many of the sessions with the professor, so thank you. And uh, Keith, I have to point you out as well. Uh, uh, an edgy young man, the new generation with energy and moves in, I would say, high finance circles and is working very hard to not just study and extend and come up with ideas of this gold standard business and this new Austrian business, but to bring it to the attention of powerful people um, and many people. And last but not least, I don't know why he's hiding in the back of the bus, but Sandeep Jaitley, uh, the professor of protégé, a mathematician, an intellect. Uh, his creation of the basis, co-basis, to me is a breakthrough. Nobody's ever done this before. And his explanation of the the temporal mismatch as being at the heart of the so-called fractional reserve problem and a bunch of other stuff. And he's also working on new things that it's up to him to talk about. So, thank you. Did I miss anybody? <laughs> all right, so um, in the spirit of this, obviously we're all friends of gold here, uh, and I bet you you all watch the internet to see what's the latest stuff, and, that, and we watch to see well, are we, are we causing any change? Do we, are we doing? Because, you know, Philip told me, he says, when we, when we made this agreement, he says, Rudy, we're going to change the world. I didn't bet an eyelash. So, yeah, today we changed the world, and what's for supper? So, <laughs> but I thought about it, I said, oh, yeah, right, change the world. And I thought, well, you know what? The world's always changing anyways, yeah. slowly, quickly. Maybe we can channel it in a better direction. And then I said, well, that's still a pretty big task. But then the other idea is that the pen is mightier than the sword. The ideas are what will change the world. And suddenly it, it actually starts to make sense that if you get the right ideas to a sufficient number of people at the right time, and the tipping points obviously are critical, stuff that will not make any difference will be crucial at that point. So let's, let's change the world for the better. So on that basis, <clears throat> I'd like to talk about some of the rumors and news and what have you on the internet. Then I will get away from the theory and as I said before, I'm a mostly a practical guy, engineer, and before I take on a project to build a press or a machine, I say, what's the numbers? Does it make any sense? The theory is good, but does it fit into some kind of a reality check? So first rumor is India considering buying Iranian crude for gold. Yeah, well, India getting away their gold, I don't know. And then the second one, Iran bought or has bought or is buying food for gold. 
And this is Reuters, and it's, it may not even be a rumor, maybe this is actually true. And suddenly it starts to click and gel, and it says what Mr. Alan Greenspan said, in extremis, fiat has no place to go but gold. Well, if you go in Hungary, that's extremis. And if you have gold in this hand, and no chance to uh, spend paper, or borrow, or print, and you're cut off from the US dollar, and you're cut off from the euro by the powers that be, and your interbank connections are cut off, you start to think about this. You start to think about it. So I can see this happening. <clears throat> now, whether it is or has, we'll decide the point, because it's more or less a thought experiment just to show how this could develop and what it means. It's, it seems to make sense. So let, give me just one second here. All right. <clears throat> so let's suppose it actually works out and Iran says to, uh, to the Indians, look, we're hungry, we want, uh, you know, we need something, and agrees to buy food and spare parts are desperately, desperately, not just urgently, but desperately needed stuff for gold. And just to make it simple, I'm going to say 10 tons of gold, 10 pallets, and they decide to do it. Well, the first thought that would come to my mind if I just spent my gold on food is, oh shit, how much gold do I have left? Because it's not coming back, I can't print it or borrow it or create it, the discipline of gold pops up instantly. So the next thought is, if we spend this gold, how do we replace it? And then, you know, put yourself in the Indian shoes, and they want to sell us oil for gold? Well, I don't know. Well, we can't do it with rupees, we can't do it with paper. We need oil. The Iranians are giving us a good price. And you know what? I think the clincher Ah, it's not our gold, it's their gold anyways. We send it back to them and we buy the crude. <coughs> so could that work? I don't see why not. So let's suppose the deal is made and orders are written and so many, you know, whatever. I have some numbers on that, how many barrels of crude actually. If it's 10, um, well, let, let me just break in here for a second. I'm using oil because it's the biggest trade item in the world. 80 million barrels of oil change hands per day. 80 million uh, barrels at 106 bucks a barrel is 8.5 billion dollars daily. So, and at uh, 1,600 ounce, uh, 1,660 per ounce of gold, that translates to, you know, there's 40 million dollars per pallet and whatever you want. That's daily tons of 212 tons of oil, uh, sorry, gold would have to change hands to support the whole world oil trade. Well, 212 tons is a significant hunk of, uh, you know, gold, but it's, it doesn't seem to be out of range. There's 160,000 tons of gold in the world. <clears throat> so, uh, Iran provides approximately 5% of the world's oil supply, which comes to 4 million bar uh, barrels per day. And um, that comes to $430 million. And that translates to 10.8, say 10 tons of gold per day. Of course, obviously, they're not going to sell all their oil to, um, to India, but still, 10 tons is not out of range. So if they send 10 tons of gold over there and that comes back, then we come up to this little chart here. How do they do this? How, what actually happens? Well, the order is written, and there's a treaty and a handshake, and we make sure it nets out properly because nobody wants to lose gold. And then, here we go, the tankers pull up and start filling up, 
and uh, the other side of the pond, freighters with grain and uh, I don't know, whatever stuff, spare parts, pipeline parts, or anything that Iran needs, containers. And these ships start to leave the ports and they head across and they get to the other end. And it's tea day, tanker day, I put it up here. The, the, the tank, the, the time starts. Whoever receives this oil signs the receipt or the bill or whatever you want to call it, the invoice. Yes, we got the oil and we have negotiated 90 days to pay. Just to take a nice simple number and obviously you know where I'm going with this. Stuff arrives here today. In 90 days, the gold comes due. These bills have to be paid in gold as agreed. So, in Iran, there's a, a, a vault and 10, ton, 10 pallets of gold getting ready for shipment, wrapped up, secured, same thing in India. Motorcade comes out, uh, these armored vehicles, police escort, or maybe a military escort, this is a lot of wealth, and they take it down to the airport, put it in the airplane, the other end the same thing, the airplanes leave, and they go, and does that, do you see that? I mean, these airplanes could go to the middle of the uh, Indian Ocean, turn around and go back, and land with 10 tons of gold, and nothing has changed, it's just the same, it's gold, it's the same thing. So in a way, it makes no sense to actually ship the gold. It's not logical, it costs a lot of money. But if you don't trust the other guy, yeah, ship me my gold, and the other guy says, ship me my gold. And if they do trust each other at some point, well, just leave it in the warehouse and change title when it comes to you. <coughs> All right. But 10 tons uh, in uh, 90 days, these are months here, so that's 90 days. That's not a lot, obviously, we're talking about 10 tons per day. So what if they want to do another deal? Let's say they want to do it once a month or once a week. Well, then this starts to happen. You have a bill drawn here, which matures here. And let's say we just stick to a month. You have another one that matures here. And another one that matures here. Presumably this will continue, I don't have to draw it again. So you've got 10 tons of gold committed here, 20 tons, 30 tons. Oh, is that fractional reserve? Well, no, this matures and the title changes and the, the gold goes back to Iran and the Indian gold goes back to India. So the same 10 tons of gold does it again and again. So what's to keep it from happening every day? Nothing. Obviously, you can finance as much uh, transplant or whatever of, of any kind of commodity with a, with a, you know, a reasonable amount of gold. It, I mean, the commodity markets of the world net out once a day. Why couldn't this net out once a day? And then they would be shipping uh, $40 million worth of oil daily and finance it just through pieces of paper that go to the other end and, and that's it. So that's quite amazing. Quite amazing. And any time that there's some lack of trust, new rumor hits the internet, Iranian gold is full of tungsten, so this one, bring, ship it. We want to test our gold. Our gold. It's our gold until it goes back to you. So they ship it. And then trust is restored and it continues on. So, well, what happens next? Well, one of two things can happen. Obviously, you can increase this and get substantial trade going. And if you want to be, you want to have a more, more reserve, maybe you start to put 20 tons of gold to work, doesn't matter. 
The only thing here is the trade must net out. If there's a net difference, uh, you know, nine tons of gold worth of stuff goes one way and 11 tons goes the other way, you get a two ton shortfall and uh, that has to create up sooner or later in gold. The discipline of gold, you can't create it out of paper, out of thin air. If you commit that gold, you end up, you end up losing it and so on. Another thing that happened, Mr. Crazy Chavez may hear about this arrangement. He's crazy, but he's not stupid. He's ahead of the crowd. He says, you know what? Give us our gold. Give us our gold. And I know the German people here, some of them understand that Germany is starting to think about, where is our gold? <laughs> Should we ask for our gold? Do we dare ask for our gold? Or is it lost in the vaults of the Americans or God knows where? And why are the Chinese encouraging their people to buy gold? And why are they repatriating their gold to Hong Kong? So Mr. Chavez says, <clears throat> Iran's getting gold for their oil, and we're getting stinking greenbacks. We don't want those stinking greenbacks. We want gold. <laughs> well, when, and when the Chinese want to buy <clears throat> crude or the Japanese, and they really, really need it, they may just agree to do that, to start buying it for gold, on the proviso that the other guys buy stuff back from them in gold as well. Now, what happens, of course, is as soon as three or four countries have joined this, this is still bilateral. It's between two countries, or it's between two countries this way. Still, it makes it easier to net out, because if there's an imbalance vis-a-vis -vis India and uh, Iran, it may be made up against with uh, Chavez or whatever. So we see a little improvement. But now there's a big step. What does it take to be multilateral? Well, it takes a clearinghouse. And what happens with a clearinghouse is the gold doesn't sit in the warehouse in Iran or in India. It, sit, it sits in the warehouse in the clearinghouse. And these trades are netted out against that gold. And of course then, any other, any other country can join this network, this multilateral network, and be liberated from having to worry about the other guy's gold. Is there, uh, what do you call it, uh, is it platinum instead of gold or is it tungsten? It's all up to the clearinghouse. And now, if most countries don't need to have that gold ready to go, only that you, you just double the productivity once again. And all the other bilateral countries who join this arrangement don't have to have their own gold uh, committed. Just one. So one hoard of gold can finance the whole world trade. Guess what? That's what London used to do. 150 to 200 tons sitting in a vault gathering dust finance world trade, so much world trade that it took till the late 1970s to match it, even in spite of all the technological improvements. So I don't want to hammer this to death, but there's one more thing left to say that's important, I think. First of all, we already showed that there's plenty of gold. This is a myth, 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 myth. And gold is not deflationary. Gold is gold. It just sits there. Is somebody going to grind it up and put it, mix it with mud and throw it back in the mines to diminish the money supply? I don't think so. It may go into hiding, but that's a different question. And it's not inflationary, obviously. You can't create it. It's very steady. And those deflations which took place throughout history were done in principle or in effect by going off gold and then going back on gold. Now, if you do that, you inflate under paper and then you go back on gold, yeah, it's deflate, it deflates that inflation. It's kind of like a balloon. You don't deflate a balloon unless you inflate it first. The world is not symmetrical. 
If I don't pick up this pen, I can't drop it. But once I picked it up, yeah, I can drop it. So, plenty of gold, uh, very steady, and we talked about all the technicalities. But there's a whine and a cry. It's, oh, we don't have any gold, poor us. Those Indians have it all, the Chinese are getting it. What are we going to do? Well, if the gold is in the warehouse, you can get into that just as easily as anybody else. And, and when it comes to, to whining, it's poor Canucks should whine, Canadians. In uh, 1990, Canada had 500 tons of gold in the, in the Royal Canadian Mint. 500 tons. It's not a nice piece of gold. You know how much we have today? Three. <laughs> now, why did the Canadian government sell the gold? Well, I don't want to point fingers, but if you look over my shoulder and you see Washington, the, 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 the elephant gives you a cross-eyed look. You don't like gold. <laughs> And to prove this, I just brought up a little bit. Does anybody know anything about airplanes, jets, and so on? Ever hear of a thing called an Avro Arrow? Okay, you know, uh, Lancaster bombers and Mosquito fighter planes in World War II, the best of the best. It was, they, the Lancaster was the best bomber. It was built by a company called the Haviland or Avro. They bought a Canadian aerospace firm, and they set up shop in Toronto or somewhere in Ontario, and started to build these fighter aircraft. Now this was 1960, and they built a Delta Wing high-performance fighter aircraft that could do Mach 2 with Canadian-built uh, turbine engines or in the turbine engines <coughs> that was well ahead of the state of the art. And they had five prototypes, and the sixth one was 97% finished, ready to fly. Avionics, uh, aeros that's a structure, engines, the whole enchilada except the weaponry which the Americans were supposed to provide. And that our then Prime Minister, Mr. Diefenbaker, suddenly cancelled the program. These six airplanes, which had cost plenty mucho money, were dismantled, not even put in the museum. And that was the end of that. And to this very day, there's controversy on why that happened. Well, you know. <laughs> so Canada is subject to this pressure. Anyway, they sold their gold. So that means Canada can't join this, right? Well, obviously not. How do we, can, how would Canadians do it? Canada provides uh, 3.2 million barrels per day of oil versus, uh, what did I say, um, 4 million for Iran. Pretty nice, pretty nice chunk of oil. So let's suppose the Canadians say, okay, we're going to fill one super tanker, and a super tanker carries 2 million barrels, give or take a penny, and send it off to China, and from the other coast, uh, you know, I don't know, magnetite or ore going to Europe and wheat and this and that and suddenly they net up in that warehouse 5, 10, 15, 20, 50 tons of gold. That's theirs. They, they earned it. They, they got transferred to their title. So if you just stop right there, within a matter of a month or two, Canada could have 50 tons of gold and in a year, 500 tons. Well, of course that's not going to happen because they want to buy stuff from Chinese and they want to buy stuff from you know BMWs or Audis. I like Audis myself. But let's suppose they're smart enough to say we're gonna sell 50 tons of oil and this and that gold tons, but we're only gonna buy 45 tons of the other stuff. Well, they're running a balanced uh, positive balance, they can start refilling their, their kitty. Plus Canada has gold mines and so on and so forth. So that is how it could happen. Good. Now, I just want to say another thing here. We talked, I, I go a little bit down to my second um, 
graphic here. Present good promises future goods. And then this is obviously all these promises are paper promises and there's a bond market and a bill market. And I do this bigger for a reason. You know, we always talk about how huge this market is and blah, blah, blah. Huge is a nice word, but that doesn't get the airplane built. So, a super tanker that can carry 2 million barrels of oil, which is worth $212 million today, or 5.3 gold tons. You can buy one on the second-hand market today for 50. I checked that out too. A brand new one would be 115 or 120 million. So you've got this, uh, uh, what do you call it, uh, a 50 million ship, 50 million dollar ship, that in one voyage transports, uh, what did I say? 200 dollars. Yeah, 200 uh, and a little bit more than that, 212, that fluctuates, but you see it's a big difference. And clearly it has to be that way. Uh, if your ship had to earn some money, it can't cost more than the stuff it carries. Uh, you know, you, your margin of profit on each voyage is fairly small. So it, in 10, 15 years, it fully pays for itself. So, you want to finance your, your ship. So let's look at interest rates. If you borrow this money, uh, it's going to cost you $2 million per year. 4% is a pretty good average. And, in, in, and say in 15 years, you pay it off, done. And then it costs you nothing except maintenance. But the fuel in that, or the oil that it's carrying, you finance it, comes to $8 million a year if you finance that from the bond market. So four times the cost to finance your, your cargo than to finance the ship. So if you, if you wipe this out and you bloat this up, and in fact you wipe this out and you bloat this even bigger because even paper money is in here, this is enormous, this runs the world. If the, and the world, I did the number for the world too. It comes to at 80 million barrel, barrels a day. Uh, the world borrows, and if it interest is only 3%, it still comes to about 7.6 billion, and at 4% comes to 10 billion. That's a lot of dough. And if you did that this way, it would sort of cost you like nothing, or maybe some sort of little bit of opportunity cost, or whatever, certainly much less. I don't want to go in there now. But it just goes to show you that this thing could be four times or even more uh, bigger than the bond market. So to say it's liquid, it's, it's beyond liquid. Right now this is pretty liquid, but it's pumped up. So, any questions on this, on this transfer or anything? Everybody is cool with this? Pretty just a basic question. Yes, sir. The, the gold does not belong to the government, it belongs to the central bank. Well, it's irrelevant, whether it's the paper, whether it belongs to the central bank. In, in, I know it's a, it's a private company and all this stuff, but this is all details, details. And if, if the Congress decides to write a new law that says it's now ours, now it's the Treasury's, this is all, this is all up in the branches of evil. I'm talking about the root. This is not about Constitution at all. I'm sorry? This is not about constitution. Mm -hmm. Well, in a, way it is, in a way it is, because constitutionally this is the way it's supposed to be, exactly like this. Bills, bonds, but never mind, I'm talking about under pressure when all else fails, you put your goal to use, or you go hungry. I mean, if, you, if the world can't finance these uh, 80 million barrels of oil, what, guess what, we're going to be cold. Okay, so uh, we spent quite a bit of time 
talking about technicalities and all this and that. So I'd like to just say a few words about human nature, because it all ties into human nature. <laughs> um, you have to think from the little details, you know, there's an old saying that a specialist is a guy who knows more and more about less and less till he knows everything about nothing. Well, you don't want to go that far, but you want to understand these details, how these things work. The other end is the generalist, a guy who knows less and less about more and more till he knows nothing about everything. So, I'm going to go in that direction now. Does anybody think human race is not arrogant? I don't see any hands. I think they're pretty dang arrogant, particularly because they sort of somehow have the strange idea that they're apart from nature. They're not part of nature. So you get the, the master ones. Nature is there for us to conquer. Nature is there for us to exploit. We'll tell it what to do. And then you have the other extreme, extreme eco-freaks, if I dare use that, who think that humanity is a blight on the face of the earth, a virus, an infection, should get rid of it. Well, I always tell those type of guys, here's a sword, fall on it, show us the way. <laughs> they never do. It's always the other guy has to go. But really the reality is people do live with nature, they're a part of nature, and they are, they are in, it's impossible to break a natural law. You do understand that you cannot break a natural law. If you step out the window, you fall. Law of gravity, if someone designs an airplane and misses a resonance law or a uh, aerodynamic law or a structural law, the wind comes off at the wrong moment. So, you can certainly go out and break human laws, uh, act on regulations, you know, speed with your car, well, maybe not in Germany, but in Canada, speed with your car, whammo. But if you break natural law, you pay the price, sooner or later, depending what law you're breaking. Does anybody know Richard Feynman, the name Feynman? Yes. He's a Nobel laureate physicist. Um, he worked on the Manhattan Project. He's, there's a book out called Genius. And, and, and this, this is the guy who discovered why the US shuttle blew up. Seven people died. And anybody heard about that? Okay, I'm gonna tell you the story. NASA, the big cover-up, we don't know, we don't, you know, we're not responsible, blah, 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 blah. But they had the forced public opinion, forced a, a true scientist maybe even call him a natural philosopher, to sit on the board of inquiry and say, what really happened here? This guy's pretty smart. He says, you know what? There's a little flame there. There's an O-ring that's supposed to seal this. And why, you know, why is flame coming out here on the pictures? Okay. And it was 32 degrees Fahrenheit. That's about zero Celsius that day. So he made a few inquiries. He says, did you guys ever take off a shuttle at that temperature? So, well, no, it's Florida. And the temperature is never that low. We never went below you know, 44 degrees or whatever. Okay, so he did a very sophisticated, multi-billion dollar, huge investigation, which consisted of a glass of ice water and a piece of the O-ring rubber. I'm being facetious. Stuck it in, waited about five minutes, <coughs> took the O-ring out and squeezed it. Well, guess what, it didn't spring back. Now, an O-ring is supposed to be made, it's made of rubber, to be flexible, and when the thing vibrates, the O-ring keeps it and, you know, keeps that thing sealed. The rubber was compressed because it was not springing back because the temperature was at a point where it wasn't designed to work. So he says, there it is, that's the problem. The O-ring failed and killed seven people and cost you, I don't know how much it cost for a, sh a shuttle, but it's more than anybody uh, can imagine it's government work. And then they went a little further and 
well, did you guys do any testing on this? Well, no, and the engineers start to say, well, we told you we have no record of this. We can't say with certainty that it'll work. I mean, engineers are conservative buggers, you know? They have to sit under the bridge and it just might collapse. So they says, we don't know, we want to test it first, but the bureaucrats, the arrogance is, we're going to fly. Icebergs, full steam ahead, Titanic. Well, the same thing happened. So this guy, anyway, this is a digression, but he has a concept of nature called the principle of least action. Principle of least action. What does that mean? Well, I'll give you a few examples and you understand. In nature, everything always takes the path of least action. You know, you fire a cannonball, a nice parabola, and of course the actual parabola is created by the interaction between uh, potential energy, kinetic energy, or gravity and, and momentum. But there it is, you can't change it, really. You can make a big parabola, a little parabola, steep, it's always the same. Or, or you hang up a chain, heavy chain, you hang it up, takes a shape, catenary curve. Again, unless you want, if you want to change that, you have to do something. That's its natural state. Or a little more sophisticated, the soap bubble. Think a soap bubble is such a big deal? Well, dip in to soap a little <coughs> three-dimensional wireframe model, pull it out, and mathematician will confirm this. It, may, it takes the uh, least action path, minimum surface area in this case, and to calculate this, <coughs> except for a trivial case, it's getting pretty hairy math, no? Yeah, even computer work, it's not easy to do. Or one more example, you take protein molecules, in, in, for example, in the human body with hundreds and hundreds of atoms and van der Waals forces and God knows what, and they fold and unfold in, a, in an intricate pattern, and supercomputers can't even figure this out. But nature does automatically. That's the way, that's natural law. So humanity is part of nature, must obey laws, and there's a price for breaking laws. So guess what? If you break the laws of economics, which are imposed outside, they're not written by, by governments, you pay a price. If you want your cannonball, cannonball to go tuk, 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 well, guess what? It, it takes a hell of a lot. And if you want to get the bill market, that's going to cost. And if you want to get rid of gold, it's going to cost, it's going to cost, it's going to cost. And if you put duties, and regulations and the North American Free Trade Agreement, thousand pages of regulations, every one of those things cost. That's like a death of a thousand cuts. So the economy is running in the, in the negative, it's losing. Every day, every transaction. You must have heard about Amazon.com when they first started. They lost money on every book. The more books they sold, the more money they lost. Well, somehow they managed to change that around. But I tell you, if we don't change it around, that's where we're heading into bankruptcy, the whole world. So, you know, I encourage everyone to do their little bit to spread the word and get some, some action on getting people's attention. Hello, we're on the road to hell, and I smell the sulfur, and it's smelling stronger every day. So we better start going in another direction. And um, <clears throat> I don't know if I've got anything else to say. That's it. We go from here.